Hello and welcome back to another week in the world of Sasta with me, Harry Stebbings, and you can find me on Instagram at hstebbings1996. I'd absolutely love to see you there, where you can suggest questions for future guests and be named in that episode, but to the show today. And with Sasta Parish just one week away, we thought what better way to show the quality of Sasta's events than with one of my favourites from the annual this year with Phil Fernandez, former CEO of Marketo, on the top 10 things he would have done differently with Marketo. For those that don't know Phil, as I said, he's a Silicon Valley veteran with more than 35 years of experience building and leading breakout technology companies. Phil co-founded Marketo in 2006 and led the company as chairman and CEO for over a decade, overseeing its successful IPO and acquisition by Vista Equity Partners. And prior to Marketo, Phil served as president and COO of Epiphany, an enterprise customer relationship management software company. And today, Phil is a venture partner with Shasta Ventures, the fund with a portfolio including the likes of Nest, Eero, Zuoro and Canva, just to name a few of their incredible companies. And I'd also have to say a huge thank you to Doug Pepper at Shasta for the intro to Phil many months ago. I really do so appreciate that. But before we head into the show today, when you're working, do you struggle with file version control or worry about sharing sensitive files both in and outside of your organization? Well, my friends over at Ignite are solving these challenges and much more. Their industry-leading SaaS platform is reinventing the digital workplace, providing a single source of truth for all company content. And for those handling international data, Ignite fully supports GDPR compliance, helping you find and secure sensitive information to prevent harmful breaches and avoid penalties. And if you'd like to learn more about what Ignite has to offer, visit www.ignite.com forward slash Sasta. That's www.egnyte.com slash Sasta. Again, that's www.egnyte.com forward slash Sasta. It really would be great for you to check that out. And another product you must check out is ProsperWorks, the number one CRM for G Suite embedded into Gmail so you can update opportunities, add contacts, get account histories, and manage your pipeline right from your inbox. And the integration is so effortless that you're up and running in hours, not months. And that, and for many other reasons, is why it's so loved by over 10,000 customers in over 100 countries and trusted by the likes of Google, MailChimp, Peugeot, and Opendoor, just to name a few. So check it out on prosperworks.com and make selling easier. But that's quite enough from me, so it's now time to sit back, relax, and enjoy one of my favorite talks from this year's Master Annual with Phil Fernandez. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. I've got uh, kind of 10 things that are worth talking to. The first, and I get asked this probably when I spend time with uh, entrepreneurs these days as often as anything else, which is, you know, what's a CRO? Should I have a CRO? What's a CRO do? You know, I didn't get this right at Marketo. I had a SVP, amazing Bill Bench that just ran the most amazing customer acquisition machine. I had a separate, I had a marketing that my co-founder, I had at one point to try to look at scale. I actually experimented with a chief revenue officer over marketing and sales. That was a mistake. I would never do that again. And then my chief customer officer had the whole back end of the customer process. So I really had lots of kind of moving parts. As I look at that and as I think about kind of modern SaaS companies and how things are going now, I would do that very differently. I think, you know, ultimately the way this has to happen is is companies need a chief revenue officer that's a revenue person, that's a salesperson, that's somebody that's out there about putting money on the board. It comes out of a sales background and it owns 
every aspect of revenue soup to nuts. Kind of planning for acquisition. How does the demand funnel work? I don't mean that they necessarily own demand gen, but they have to understand it. How does growth happen? How does cross-sell, upsell, multiple product sales go? How do success happen? How do renewals happen? That needs to fit under one executive. If you start to put seams inside those because different people run different pieces of that, doesn't work. You know, professional services can go do enablement. You know, probably tech ops someplace has support. And marketing is separate. You know, I even wrote a book, you know, my revenue disruption book. I talked about how marketing and sales need to come together and how there's lots in common and, and differences. But as I've kind of reflected over the years, you know, I continue to realize how different marketing and sales are. You know, marketing is a long-range strategic function. Sales is a right-now-make-the-quarter kind of function. So I think marketing needs to be separate from the CRO, but having one person that owns all the revenue is how I would do it over. And we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about RevOps in a couple of minutes, because I think that's one of the most important pieces of wisdom I would, I would have to share. So last time, broken up. Next time, one chief revenue officer that owns every aspect of revenue, one person to ask to own that entire piece. Now we'll shift gears just a little bit. I originally called this a CPO, and then I realized everybody's going to think it was a chief product officer, so I've invented this term, CPO. looks a little funny. But this is one of the kind of one of the lessons that, that I really took away from Marketo that I think everybody can learn from. It will be a little bit controversial. You know, I outsourced HR for a number of years at Marketo, and then as we were growing, brought in kind of a great operational VP that could, you know, make sure we could do payroll and we'd have benefits and take care of the shop. But it was really only after uh, we went public and had grown that I actually went out and found an amazing, very, very senior chief people officer. She's now doing that job at DocuSign here in the city. And it was transformative to me to have this kind of an individual and this kind of an executive in the company that was able to really look after the people function in the business. And one of the things that I would say is that if you're building a business, you know, you're watching pennies, you've got investors that are asking you what your zero cash date's going to be, you're thinking about your next investment, and all those things make it really hard to make investments that aren't in product around and go to market in the early stages of a company. But I assert that you ought to hire the most senior, most capable, most executive chief people officer as soon as you can. You know, if you've got 20 or 30 people or 40 people in the company, if you're scaling, if you're growing, you need to have an HR function up and running. And I've just, you know, I read a, you know, an expose just in Business Exciter, I guess, you know, yesterday about a company that had gotten to some scale and didn't have an HR function and in fact had some goofy stuff going on with harassment in the company and there was no kind of outlet for where that can happen. And I think it's just a, a terribly important thing to do in a business. You need to hire the most senior HR person you can find. They need to report to the CEO to have that direct pipeline and to have that kind of trust that comes in. And this is really important because number one, we are all in a global fight for talent. You know, there is no safe refuge. You know, I planted labs all over the world when we were at Marketo and, you know, we could no longer or no sooner be any place than Facebook and Google and everybody else compounding in and started fighting for talent. And if you don't have somebody that's really helping you from day one think about that global fight for talent, you know, you're going to lose compared to people that do. And in this world, no matter what the tone at the top is, no matter how powerful the culture is in the company, you need help to build a culture. You need somebody that's a safe place to ensure that even if you're setting the right tone at the top, everybody in the organization feels empowered, feels safe, feels that they have a place to go. And I think this is one of the most important things always, but even in the culture of kind of Me Too movement and other things today, I can't say enough about how important this is. So you still might not get the kind of amazing executive I was able to hire after IPO, but go 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 big on this function, go early on this function. Kind of related to this a little bit, and another really interesting lesson I learned at Marketo 
Colorado was how to integrate social responsibility, community involvement, a perspective in the company beyond just the business. And I didn't do that at all when I started Marketo. You know, I'm super high driving. My greatest weakness in the world is, you know, every time, you know, I get to the top of a hill, we accomplish something. We ship a product, we get our biggest customer, we land whatever. I get to the top of that hill and I say, great, let's go on to the next one, you know, and forget to kind of give people time. And so culturally being able to create that kind of space in a culture is important in general. But I think one of the things I realized is how important it is to start to integrate that set of ideas more broadly with volunteerism, with community, with creating an environment where a company doesn't exist as an island, but instead exists in the, in the community and in the places that it operates. So Marketo, we had a volunteer time off program, but no real program about it. We had grassroots encouragement for people to do things, but there wasn't really very much that was was going on. I would encourage you as, you know, Salesforce, of course, was amazing at this uh, uh, Mark Benioff's 111 program of kind of instilling in that organization from day one a culture of giving back, a culture of volunteerism. I admire so many things about that company, but it's one of the things at the, at the very top of the list of what I admire. And so even if you're just, you know, figuring out how to raise your Series A, or you're trying to figure out how to grow and scale a little bit, if you're leading a company, you ought to be thinking about how to start to bring things like social responsibility, community involvement into your program. You need to staff for it. This just doesn't happen by magic, you know? We had a lot of energy going on at Marketo about it, but people had busy jobs and without creating opportunities. So, you know, later in the days, we actually staffed a, you know, senior director level individual in the company just to help propagate and, and, and drive forward our involvement in the community. This is a, a, this is a CEO-led function. You know, for me, it was really a, an amazing epiphany when I happened on this idea that I could integrate, you know, my own personal beliefs about social justice and some, you know, even political beliefs within limits into the company environment as opposed to how I had kind of deeply compartmentalized all those things before. And by being able to bring an idea of what the company stands for, what the company stands for and the communities in which you operate really changes the complexion of a company. That doesn't mean everybody that works for you have to believe. And in fact, it's really important to create a safe environment. But it is important to lead from the perspective of what you believe in and to create that as an animating force in the company because I think it provides you know, just a dimension to the workforce that you'll never get if you don't do something like that. And one of my great regrets, you know, I could have, I would have, I should have, we were very close to setting up, in fact, some pre-public stock for a foundation. I had one board member that wanted to lay down in the tracks about that and stopped me. I could have run over if I had had the chance. I could have won that one and I didn't. I chickened out and it was a mistake. So I'm not saying this is right for every company, but think of that magic thing because when we were public, when we were a $300 million run rate company, when we had great community involvement programs, man, I would have killed to be able to have some funds and some ability to be able to really invest in giving back as part of the company. And so if you ever think about that, if it's a moment, don't miss that moment in your company to be able to set aside and plan for the future because it's a special thing that you can only do once. This is kind of a weird one. It's actually, I'm involved in, a, in another, I'm on the board of another public company in New York that's fighting through the exact same issues that I did at Marketo. So I think it happens to, happens to, to, to more, than, more than just us. Um, and that's about how to, how to think about enablement and bringing customers alive and how you charge for it and the like. And I personally, in the early days of Marketo, remember writing their webpage about our customer services and support. And I, and I wrote this line that was on our website probably for two and a half or three years that said, at Marketo, your success doesn't have a price. Big mistake, big mistake. And that produced, and it was a culture that in fact translated right into the sales organization where sales then picked up on that and started to tell everybody, don't worry, it's really easy, you know, you'll be up and running. Don't, don't bother, you know, don't worry about uh, what it is to get running. You know, it's easy. And as a result, we kind of had these unstructured enablement 
enablement programs and we got a mentality of like, it's so easy that you just kind of get in and get out and let customers, uh, let customers be alone. That's a mess if you don't do something better than that. It will translate directly into churn. It will translate directly into limiting the lifetime value of your customers. And really there's a, there's a, there's a, a psychological thing behind this that I think is rooted in a lot of lessons, which is that if people don't put skin in the game, if they don't have a mental commitment and a financial commitment to what you're asking them to do, it's really easy to get distracted. It's really easy not to follow through. And you just see that, and I see this in SaaS companies over and over and over again where a sale takes place, but the customer never really quite gets there with the product. And so I think you should have expensive services with every time you sell a product. You should ask people to make a commitment to your product, to sign up to a one-time check to be able to get live in your product. That gives you the ability to lavish attention on them, that gives them the psychological commitment that they need to follow through. And I think it's actually, uh, even though you'll lose a deal here and there because you're a little more expensive or whatever else, in terms of lifetime value of the customer, I pretty much guarantee you're going to win. It's very important if you're starting to think about this and if you have an all a service-intensive product as well, create choice, create opportunity. Don't just do it in-house, but do it. Do, do some capability, but also work very early days of building partners and building a network of people because... You know, it's quite remarkable, and you can look at the statistics. I did, I saw it at Marketo. I've seen it at other companies. The more there's an ongoing how-to services relationship, whether it's you or a partner that's engaged with a customer over time, the odds of a renewal, the odds of growth, the odds of success go up by a factor of who knows what, you know, two, four, ten, something like that in terms of being able to keep people to grow and stay with you. So I think this is very, very important to manage and grow the overall base of the business and to ensure that that engagement is continuing. So success has to have a price and you gotta be making people to make that commitment to you very early on. Well, this is one of the important ones and it's one of the ones that I'm so thrilled to see Finally, that I, I see a dialogue happening in the Valley. I see a dialogue happening in the SaaS community overall about the, the amazing importance of this function that I call RevOps. It has been called sales ops very, uh, very frequently, but I think RevOps is a, is a, a, a very, very uh, much better term. You know, at Marketo, we went for the longest time. We had a, you know, a great marketing ops function in marketing that figured out how the whole demand funnel would work. And my co-founder, John, you know, built this, built this just amazing ability to really think about the, the, the marketing operation and how that impacted revenue. We had in sales, a sales ops function. We had in the chief customer officer then went and created a renewal ops function that figured out. And, you know, the honest truth is they didn't talk very much. They really didn't coordinate very well together. It really, you know, really wasn't very good. And then the second thing that I see just like all the time is when people start to build a sales ops function, you know, it really turns out you go get the best Salesforce administrator you can possibly find and you ask them to be sales ops and they get Salesforce set up and they get, you know, the basic, the basic, you know, leads and opportunity models set up and all that kind of stuff. SFDC administration is not sales ops. It's not rev ops. Rev ops is a very strategic function in a company. It's about modeling. It's about analysis. It's about vision. It's about really understanding the business. And I sort of put adjacent to this because it's worth talking about. You know, the same, the other thing we did at Marketo was for the longest time, the way we trained salespeople was, you know, we'd hire a new salesperson and we'd say, there, go sit next to Chip or go sit next to Kevin or whatever and do what they do because they're, you know, they're making their numbers. So listen to what they do and do the same thing. Doesn't work very well.
well when you got 50 or 100 reps to hire, but frankly, it doesn't work very well when you got five to hire because people don't really come to understand the nuance of the business. And so if I were doing it over, first of all, even by two or three million dollars in revenue, I would be wanting to staff a VP level RevOps executive, an executive that you know ideally comes out of a sales or a, a, a revenue function, but might be a financial planning and analysis, FP&A person out of a finance organization, somebody that really knows how to model and understand a business, somebody that knows and can communicate. And one of the things I look for in this kind of a person is somebody who can, who can storytell, who can come back to me as an executive, come back to the team and say, this is what's happening in the revenue function. This is what's working. This isn't. This is how we should change it. And that ability to have that kind of a voice in the business, even very on, absolutely critical to designing the way in which you're going to go to market, where you're going to make money, how you're going to grow customers, and ultimately how you build, uh, how you build a, a, a great uh, revenue go-to-market operation. This person needs to have responsibility for the full end-to-end revenue operation. They need to look up into marketing, up into demand gen, understand where leads are coming from, what kind of account-based marketing activities are taking place, what else is going on, and think about that all the way through the renewal process, the upsell process, the growth process. At the same time, I assert that if you're not somehow, whether in, inside or going outside and investing in formal sales training programs, formal sales certification programs where you actually ask salespeople to be tested or to do practical demo kind of things to a sales trainer, by the time you've got 10 reps, you are leaving money on the table because if you can take one more rep and make them 20% more productive or 30% more productive or lo and behold, 10 reps just by a little bit, you have paid for that function three times over before you're done. Very, very good investment. This sales RevOps thing is tough. You know, I've worked with sales executives that are like, you know, that lean into it. In fact, I've worked with sales executives that are themselves RevOps people. And they're ter- terrible sales executives because they're not out selling. They're worrying about the model instead. So don't hire a salesperson that's a RevOps, a sales leader, a CRO that is. But you want that person in sales if possible. But a lot of times it doesn't work. You know, you've got a salesperson that just doesn't get there. Then the answer is just put it in finance. Give it to a CFO. Give it to a director of finance. Have it report to the CEO. But one more or the other, make sure this function exists and thrives in the business. Boy, this is really quite the change from uh, when I built Marketo. This focus on continuous expansion, thinking not about maximum initial deal size, not getting fixated. And, you know, every time we had a board meeting at Marketo, you know, we would get asked, what's our ASP? Has our average initial transaction size gone up? People were fixated on that. I'm involved in another kind of, uh, you know, company right in the middle of their T2D3 in New York City these days. I'm on the board. And, and the CEO there just made a strategic decision to, to completely change incentives, to go from a place where everything was incented about get the maximum big deal to two-year value of each initial customer and change sales comp plans and everything to think about how to think about continuous value creation. So at Marketo, we had large, you know, monolithic products. We were always pushing for how big could we get the initial deal. And then we were really lousy, frankly, at how to come back and think about uh, when and how to cross-sell or upsell or start to grow customers. And even though we were a SaaS company and we had like every last micro detail about what our customers were doing, we had no telemetry really flowing into the business or flowing into the sales team about who was using the product, how people were using the product, and when and how you should go cross-sell somebody or whatever's happening. I think that's all obsolete. A lot of people are getting this right, but it's really the most important thing to think about. You know, feature-level packaging, smaller products, bite-sized chunks, design products so that they can be bought and consumed in ways so that people can can dip a toe in the water and then they can buy a little more and they can buy a little more with intentionally designed expansion paths. Product managers, 
product marketing people that either spec products or start to think about taking them to market, you know, are really good about what's the positioning and really good about what's the value message and all those things, but they don't necessarily do such a good job of starting to think about what's the two-year path? What are the, what are the ways in which customers buy and grow and expand with products? And so demand your product team or your product marketing team at the same time they're specking your product or starting to plan for go to market, you ought to be able to answer the question of what's the second purchase? What's the third purchase? What's the fourth purchase? What's the fifth purchase? So you can start to think about this continuous lifetime value. There are amazing products starting to hit the market, right? A Pendo at some size. Uh, I talked about Aptrinsic that my um, longtime tech leader, Nick, has been in building here. These companies that are starting to build technologies that you can build into your own products and bring back into the organization for marketing, for selling, for lifetime value, for service and support. The kinds of telemetry you need to really be able to understand how products are being used and to use your product as a demand gen engine, right? If somebody's not using a key feature, the product ought to be telling the customer that they're not using a key feature and incenting and driving towards a sale and feeding that right back into your sales team. And then you gotta build financial metrics, you gotta build quotas, you gotta make sure that the incremental sale and the growth of a customer is incented every bit as much as the big initial deal. And you ought to celebrate it. You know, Marketo, we'd cover a board with all the new deals, but we didn't have any board any place for upsells. Wrong answer, you know. Celebrate lifecycle revenue every step you go. Boy, I failed at this miserably. New products. Been failing at this all my career, I think. I've been, I've been phenomenal at building new products. No problem, no, no problem creating new products at all. But boy, figuring out how to get a second product, a third product, a fourth product, a fifth product to market and to have it start to really expand and have the kind of effect on the, the revenue growth of a company. That's a, it's a, it's a shockingly hard thing to do. You know, at Marketo, between our organic product creation and M&A we did over time, we grew to have sort of five major product lines. And, you know, for good reasons and bad, I made the decision to ask the same revenue team to sell all of them. Big, big mistake. Number one, because they had gotten really good at selling the first one. And when you get really, really, really good at doing one thing, it's really hard to start to learn the next thing. And second, you know, it's really hard when you've got the tyranny of a quarter breathing down your neck or you got a board that wants to see how the you know revenue's growing to be able to not just say ultimately, you know, yeah, head of sales, I don't care what product you sell, just get the quarter made. Big mistake. And then I did half-hearted things to create a general manager to, you know, kind of own and, you know, did the classic thing of, you know, putting a GM in the product marketing organization that had an overlay responsibility and a quota. That junk. It just doesn't work from my point of view because, you know, sales is running at a different metabolism and they just run over and around that kind of stuff too often. And then downstream, we just didn't do the right stuff. You know, service and support just kept doing their thing. So we fundamentally squandered a lot of resources at Marketo, even in the context of all our success, building new products that just never had the impact on revenue and growth that they should have. If I had it to do over, I would, each of the new products, I would have created a separate, dedicated organization with a senior leader, had them report to me or had and report to a senior executive, maybe to the CRO or maybe even to a, you know, somebody other senior in the organization. You have to insist on separate quotas for the new products. If you don't have the steely resolve to have a separate quota to be able to say, you know, I don't care if we got to make a make the quarter, we have to sell this other product. If you have a company bonus plan, if you have incentives, those incentives have to be at the very top level in the organization because everything in the business is working against getting this right. And then finally, I'm the last person in the world to ever recommend a business book. If you know me, it's just not my thing. But read Jeffrey Moore's Zone to Win. It's got a great thing about incubating new products. 
that you need to know. Boy, tech is amazing, huh? Constant technology re renewal. At Marketo, tech cycles were moving fast. We started to build the product on MySQL, and no sooner did that happen, and we were out that, you know, Hadoop came along and NoSQL stuff, and then AWS and cloud stuff, and then now you got containers and serverless, and, you know, we got the same stuff going on in the front end and, and, and products. And then we labeled all the sort of old tech as tech debt, but, you know, tech debt just isn't as sexy as the new product. Boards don't want to talk about tech debt. And we just didn't renew our skill set at all adequately either because we were so focused on new product generation. If I had it to do over, you need a research function from day one. It might be the CTO, it might be a, another kind of early founder. You gotta be looking outside because if you aren't reinventing your tech, some new startup is gonna grab the next new tech and they are gonna beat you with it. I can basically promise you that. You gotta value technical currency as much as you value new products. You gotta allow schedule time in every last product cycle to be sure you're staying current. It's really hard when you got to do pro when you got to do features and you got customers that want features. I guarantee you, if you don't renew your technology and disrupt yourselves, somebody else will. The way these tech cycles are moving, M and A is a great way to drive currency. So look at that as an option. Always be seeking more TAM. You know, at Marketo, we grew up and we made a decision to grow on the slipstream of Salesforce. You know, they were growing so fast; it was nowhere near as big as they are now. Obviously, in 2006, but we got really focused on this lather, rinse, repeat kind of thing in one market. Later, we introduced Microsoft Dynamics. Support. This is obviously specific to our market, but we started to take baby steps towards new TAM. But because we were so fixated on this one market, all of our BD resources, all of our partner resources were focused on this one company as opposed to finding new friends and expanding horizons and thinking about what we would do next. So no matter how good your initial TAM looks, no matter how big you think it is, don't get comfortable. Always be thinking about what's next. Get a strategic planning function. Force yourself even at, you know, kind of series A or early series B level to have a formal strategic planning process and think offensively. What are you going to do next? What's the next market you can take? And think defensively, right? Salesforce bought exact target three weeks after Marketo went IPO. That was a big gulp because I hadn't done enough to think defensively about what happens if somebody makes a move like that. Turned out to be a non-event, as it turned out, but it was a pretty big gulp when it happened because I hadn't done enough planning for how the TAM might change if somebody makes a move. This has to be a top-level organizational focus. And let me finally close here with my last set of thoughts. People ask me a lot of times, you know, what happened? Why did I sell the company to Vista? Why did uh, Marketo, with all of our success, go down the path it did? And the answer is, you know, fundamentally... I played the clock badly. By played the clock, I mean looking out and thinking about the time horizon of building the business. So, you know, we scaled up just fine thinking about what next year was going to look like. And we were at 100 million or maybe even 150 or, or, or so million of ARR in the business until this really started to come home. But we entered 2015 needing to add $50 million of ramped quota into the sales organization. So that means with, you, you know, you kind of do uh, productivity models and attainment models and that kind of stuff. You know, that's 60 or 70 new reps that we needed to hire to just even make the numbers that people were expecting of the business, which means we needed at least 10 new sales managers to hire those 70 new reps. Oh man, and we were driving towards profitability and we were driving towards break even and all of those people are cost because all these people other than the frontline reps don't make any money. So you need a formal long range planning process by $50 million to think about the scale up thing. And most importantly, if I leave you with any thought, you gotta accurately model what this is gonna cost. I have seen so many companies where they've got a nine month sales ramp time but some board member says that's too expensive, make it six. Do not do that because you're just lying to yourself. You know, be living the real world, model how this works, resist optimizing the magic number of your customer acquisition costs at the cost of the required investments in scale up. 
Because if you get late, you will never be able to catch up. And that's what happened is Vista saw that we had gotten behind. We were catching up. We were just on that up ramp. And they hit that magic moment to come in and acquire a phenomenally great company at an expensive price, but still a good price. And this is the lesson I took away is, you know, if you don't watch the clock every time you scale, boy, it's really, really easy to get behind with the time dimension of bringing revenue online. So there you go. In uh, 30 minutes, kind of 10 things that I learned from. I hope each of you find at least one little thing to take away. What an incredible talk that was from Phil and just the most incredible learnings. I do want to say a huge thank you, Tim, for giving out the time to do such a fantastic talk. And that is the caliber that we have at Sasta and we will see it at Sasta Paris. We would absolutely love to see you there. Likewise, we'd love to see you behind the scenes on Instagram at hdebbings1996. As I said, it'd be fantastic to see you there. But before we leave you today, when you're working, do you struggle with file version control or worry about sharing sensitive files both in and outside of your organization? Well, my friends over at Ignite are solving these challenges and much more. Their industry-leading SaaS platform is reinventing the digital workplace, providing a single source of truth for all company content. And for those handling international data, Ignite fully supports GDPR compliance, helping you find and secure sensitive information to prevent harmful breaches and avoid penalties. And if you'd like to learn more about what Ignite has to offer, visit www.ignite.com forward slash SASTA. That's www.egnyte.com slash SASTA. Again, that's www.egnyte.com forward slash Sasta. It really would be great for you to check that out. And another product you must check out is ProsperWorks, the number one CRM for G Suite embedded into Gmail. So you can update opportunities, add contacts, get account histories, and manage your pipeline right from your inbox. And the integration is so effortless that you're up and running in hours, not months. And that, and for many other reasons, is why it's so loved by over 10,000 customers in over 100 countries and trusted by the likes of Google, MailChimp, Peugeot, and Opendoor, just to name a few. So check it out on prosperworks.com and make selling easier. As always, we so appreciate all your support and cannot wait to bring you next week's episode.